it's, there's going to be a profound God-centeredness and, and a direction toward the glory and exalting God in, in authentic ministry. And, and that's another element uh, that we, again, Paul's going to come back over and over and over again to turning the attention back to God and away from himself, uh, in a sense. Even, even in vying for the authenticity of his own ministry, it's, it's vying for that by continuing to, to, to focus on the glory of Christ and God, which we even see in the passage we're about to do here. These are excellent. You guys are listening. That's amazing. That's wonderful. What else? Uh, any other characteristics that come to mind? Because these are excellent. Okay, there's, a, there's clarity brought to the gospel. There's clarity brought to the gospel. Yes, brother up here, you had your... Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you're you're playing off of the peddler's idea, so they're not, you know, not peddlers who are just doing this for financial gain or personal advancement. Yeah, very good. Anybody else? Yep. Love for people. Okay. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. It's it's an idea of who is com- who is really ultimately competent. And again, you understand that this is not disparaging oneself. This is not putting oneself down. Um, it's you know it's the idea though that we do understand our limitations. It's 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 kind of the uh, you know that Clint Eastwood line. You know Clint Eastwood, the actor. He has one movie in which he says. A man's got to know his limitations or something like that. That's pretty good theology. That's pretty good theology. Uh, Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's a, there's a depth of conviction there, and, and the way you can tell that is he carries the marks on his body of his conviction, right? He's, he's willing to go through tremendous suffering, which we're going to see a bit later in the book, um, because he knows, he knows that he's right. He knows that what he's talking about is true, and he's, he's willing to suffer for it in that case. Yeah, brother? Yeah, right, that's, that's an interesting point. That he said that uh, in authentic ministry, there's, there's a willingness to lead from the bottom up, to, to carry out whatever it takes in terms of manual labor to do the lowest thing or whatever. Uh, that's, that's an excellent point. Paul takes places that are, are tasks that would seem in, undignified in some social circles of his day in order to accomplish the gospel. That's what he's doing, yeah. And then, yes. Yeah, that, that authentic ministry is playing to an audience of one, really. And, it, and later Paul will say that when we live out our ministry, we want to do it 
with integrity before all people. We want to we live in such a way that we could appeal to people generally in the culture, even who aren't Christians, uh, that it's a place of integrity. You know, it's not something that's shady or hidden. Um, but, but ultimately, that's because he's, he's living before an audience of one, that he's, he's ultimately very God-oriented, and that's way, that's, that way he can say, hey, my life is kind of an open book to people. There's nothing hidden here. I'm not trying to pull anything over on anybody. Um, so I think that's a very important point. All right, look at, look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and let me just uh, kind of chat through this one a bit. And, um, and then we're going to turn to uh, the, the next main movement. I'm not going to flash the outline up here because we're going to try to move on through this, but there are a couple of really rich points uh, in this little bit that I've entitled A Ministry of Integrity. Now, what you'll notice in 4, 1 through 6 is there are echoes here in 4, 1 through 6 of 2, 14 through 16 that we saw earlier. You know, the whole triumphal procession passage, you now have a coming back around. This is a lot of times literature in Paul's day. Uh, remember that you have uh, what is the continuation of writing in these uh, letters at this time. I don't know if you know this, but uh, in, in Paul's day, when a letter was written out, there weren't spaces between the words. There were no headings that said, okay, this is a new section, new paragraph, that kind of thing. Uh, it's just a continuation of letters on, uh, down the sheet. And uh, so in, in that day and time, with that form of writing, they had to put different kinds of signals in the text that said, hey, I'm now wrapping this part up that I've been talking about. And that technically, that, that methodology is called inclusio. Uh, if it's more extensive, where you've got a pattern of kind of A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, that's chiastic structure. Uh, but, but inclusio is where you've got a, a kind of a group of words here that were found back at the beginning of this section. And what he's doing with that is he's signaling, okay, I'm, I'm wrapping up this bit that I've been doing here. So it marks out 2.14 all the way through 4.6 as kind of a unit where he deals with the nature of ministry there using the triumphal procession imagery. He then moves into uh, this imagery that we find in chapter 3, and then he comes back around in 4.1 through 6 to talking about integrity again in ministry using some of the same imagery that he used earlier. You'll notice, for instance, he talks about those being destroyed. Well, we saw that back in 2.14 through 16. And um, so let's, let's take a look at the passage again, and let me point out a few things here. We're not going to go into tremendous depth, but uh, we want to, want to talk through this a bit and pull the threads of the tapestry together that he really started with in chapter 2, um, verses, uh, chapter two verse 14. Um, let me give you three movements in this passage in 4, 1 through 6, and kind of um, then chat through those, um, those parts. The first part is, is what I would call perseverance in an authentic ministry. This is chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So this is breaking down the outline just a little bit more. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he ta talks about perseverance in an authentic ministry. So really persevering in it. In chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, 
he's talking about why the gospel is hidden to some people. Why the gospel is hidden to some people. And you'll see him picking back up those themes like the veil lying over the heart, for instance. So chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, why the gospel is hidden to some. So 4, 1 and 2, perseverance in an authentic ministry. 4, 3 and 4, why the gospel is hidden to some. And then 4, 5 and 6, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the object and basis of authentic ministry. The object and basis of authentic ministry. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The object. So what is this all about? <laughs> and this is going to add to our list of the nature of authentic ministry. What is the aim of authentic ministry? That's the object. And what is the basis, the foundation of authentic ministry? That's what we're going to see in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Okay, so the object and basis of authentic ministry. All right, so let me talk through these um, just a minute. All right, so first of all, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, because of this, because of this, uh, it's a little phrase here, it could be translated, for this reason, for this reason. What's he referring to? Because of what? Well, because the nature of the New Covenant ministry is one where you've got um, all of this stuff going on with manifesting the glory of God. It's not about the one minister standing up front. It's about the work of the Spirit in people's lives. He's saying uh, because we have this kind of ministry, a lot of the things we were talking about in the nature of authentic ministry, because we have this kind of Christian ministry, this new covenant ministry, because of this, because of the nature of this ministry, uh, we do not give up. We are determined not to give up. It's kind of what you might call a, a posture of, determin, uh, of determination. Somebody who is, who is just really um, very, very focused, and they are, they're just hanging in there in the midst of a difficult situation over time. We, we were watching um, um, The Crown on, I guess, Pat, is that on Netflix? Is that what, what The Crown is on, I think? And we were looking at a part of that where it was talking about the boyhood of Prince Philip. And um, you don't know how much all of this is historically accurate, so we're constantly looking back to the history to try to figure out what parts are historically accurate. But there's a striking scene in which he's kind of having to grow up. He's at a very difficult boys' school, and his sister is killed. And one of the most striking scenes is he goes out in the middle of the night in his clothing, if you've seen this scene, and he's building this wall at the boys' school. And, you know, he just keeps pressing through that, through the rain and everything, by himself. Because, it, it, you know, it's kind of portraying it as a key moment for him growing up and saying, I will not let the circumstances of life defeat me. And he's, he's taking these huge uh, blocks and putting them up on the wall and mixing the mortar. And it's a, it's a real uh, interesting image of someone who is persevering through a very difficult moment in life, to, to accomplish something. And then the wonderful thing about that scene, again, I don't know how historically accurate it is, but, but the way that they portrayed it was that finally he gets to the point where he is at the limit of himself, and he goes in, and, and with the other boys in the school, he finally goes to them and says, I need help. And they go out, and then they complete the task of putting up the gates and, and that kind of thing. There's a sense in which ministry can be like that at times, that we're called to through the hard times. I mean, times when we're confused and, 
and it seems like things are not happening the way that they need to, and, and we just have to say, yet I will follow the Lord in this. I will be faithful, and I, will, I am determined that I'm going to follow through. And so what Paul is saying here is because of the nature of the type of ministry we have, which is initiated by God, where God is transforming the human heart, where God is competent to carry out this ministry through us, and you see the transformation, the change of people's lives into the glory of God. This is spreading across the earth because it's that kind of ministry we will not give up, no matter how hard it is, no matter how hard it gets. And there are many, many brothers and sisters across the world who are much better examples of this than me. We all have our battles. We all have our things that we have to persevere through, whether they're emotional or physical. I, I know brothers and sisters, though, who you know, have, have paid tremendous prices to hang in there with the gospel around the world. One of the sisters in China, Tianzi Mei, told me about a time when one of the brothers in their church out in western China was put in jail, and the response of, of the leaders in the church was to go down to the jail and say to the, to the policeman, well, if you're going to have him in jail, because they had beat the guy, beaten the guy up, and they said, if you're going to have him in jail, then we're going to need to be in jail with him. So they, they went and stayed in the jail with this, with this brother. And, and I, it's hard for me to comprehend that kind of perseverance. But that what, what Paul's saying is, because this is the nature of authentic ministry, we do not give up. Uh, we have this ministry in accordance with the mercy that we have received. In accordance with the mercy that we have received. It's, uh, it's the type of ministry that the manifest grace of God to us has changed us in a way that the sharing of that grace through the new covenant is the greatest thing that we can imagine, and we're not giving that up, right? All right, verse 2, on the contrary, we have turned our backs on the shameful things that people hide, not living by tricks nor twisting God's word, but rather by public proclamation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every person's conscience as we live before God. So you've got this posture of determination uh, that also involves a commitment not to do things in a way that is shady. Um, so th this idea of, of um, turning our backs on shameful things, not living by tricks, uh, the imagery that he is uh, using here is, uh, again, going back to the hucksters, uh, those people who kind of have uh, shady dealings. He says, we're not um, carrying out the kinds of activities that people have who are kind of having to hide what they're doing. We're not, we're not going to approach ministry that way. We're not doing pedagogical tricks, you know, teaching tricks to kind of manipulate people in, in what we want to do. We're not twisting God's Word to use as, as a tool to get people to do what we want to do. Uh, but we live a pattern of life that is commendable to others. By public proclamation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every person's conscience as we live before God. So you, you have two things there. The, the teaching is one that is a public proclamation of the truth. It's very grounded in God's Word, what God has revealed, and we're doing this as we live before God. That's a pretty good uh, formula for integrity of ministry, that what you're doing is you're staying with the words of God. You're ministering out of the words of God, 
what God has revealed, and then you are doing so before God. You're keeping your life, you're walking with Him. Again, for all of us in ministry, uh, these are safeguards that as we stay deep in the Word of God and we stay before God, that's a good, that's a good formula for integrity over time because we're, we're being directed by the Word and we're living this out honestly and openly before God. That's a, that's a good way to approach life. So uh, we're not twisting uh, the Word of God. We're not trying to, to manipulate it around to uh, get it to say things that it's not really saying. And then he says that we commend ourselves to every person's conscience. This, again, is that, that language of commendation we saw at the very beginning of chapter 3 uh, when he talks about, do we need letters of commendation? Uh, we are commending ourselves. So now here again, he's stating overtly, we commend ourselves to every person's conscience. And the idea of commending again is, is an idea of just saying that we are able to lay our lives out in front of you for examination. This is who we really are. So um, he, can, he can kind of put it out there in such a way to say, I, have, I, I can be open and honest and transparent with you about who I am. I don't have anything to hide here. Okay. Um, so he's carrying out patterns of life that can be affirmed by people of uh, you know, good character who are uh, really trying to, to live well. So the, the second movement here is why the gospel is hidden to some. Paul is saying, we live out this ministry before God in, in, in integrity, so why is it that everybody is not responding to the gospel well, which we saw back up again in the triumphal procession imagery? Why doesn't everybody just respond well? Well, he tells us here in verses 3 and 4. He says uh, in verse 3, Now even if our gospel is hidden, it is hidden among those who are being destroyed, among whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving with the result that they don't see the light emanating from the gospel, which is Christ's glory. He is the image of God. Now, this is a very difficult passage to translate. It may read a bit differently than your translation reads, but let me read it one more time, and then I'll kind of unpack it and explain why I'm, I understand it this way. Now, even if our gospel is hidden, so he's saying to some people, the gospel is, is hidden. They, they can't get it. They just don't see it to be able to grasp it at all spiritually. It's hidden among those who are being destroyed, among whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving with the result that they don't see the light emanating from the gospel, which is Christ's glory. He is the image of God. So there's a hiddenness of the gospel to some people. And in, in one sense, this is a spiritual dynamic. And in another sense, uh, that spiritual dynamic is played out at the level of worldview, the way that people see the world, right? So we are battling for the hearts and minds of people in the way they think and the way that they see the world, all right? So this, this gospel is hidden. Well, why is it that some people are so blinded to the truth of the gospel in Christ? Well, he says, because the God of this world has blinded their minds. It has to do with the spiritual condition in which they are under the sway 
of the God of this world. Let me say a word about that. The God of this world, I believe he's referring to here, is Satan. The veil draping the hearts of unbelievers in that sense is a satanic veil. They are not understanding the truth because of a satanic veil. Later in the letter, he will call these false teachers servants of Satan in 11, 14, and 15. He calls them servants of Satan. He said they look and they sound like Christian ministers, but they really are servants of Satan. He's concerned that they are going to lead the Corinthians away um, and into a, a place of being deceived. So Paul, nor the gospel he preaches, can be faulted that there are some whom his message, to whom his message is obscure. The security, excuse me, the obscurity belies a spiritual condition of those who are being destroyed. So it's manifesting their spiritual state that they don't grasp the gospel. Um, and again, he uses that imagery of those who are being destroyed. So let me say just one more word about the God of this world who has blinded their minds. Charles Hodge has put this idea poetically in this way. He says, the, t- the sun does not cease to be the sun, although the blind do not see it. So the, the reality is that the gospel is real, the Lord is real, Jesus is real. The fact that there are some people who are blind to it does not decrease the reality of, of Christ and the gospel. So uh, you have this idea that um, this gospel, the reason why some people don't believe it is because they've been blinded by the God of this world. They don't see the light emanating from the gospel, which is Christ's glory. They're cut off from the glory of God uh, with the result that they they don't see the light of the glory of God, which shines really in the face of Christ. And it goes back to what we saw about the glory of God in chapter 3. Now, when it says here that Christ is the image of God, that, that some of this glory idea has to do with image, it's exactly what we were talking about earlier. There is a theology in Paul that's kind of a second Adam theology that says that, you know, in the fall we lost the you know, in one sense the image of God became twisted or deformed, you know, in human beings with the fall. And that what we have being restored in Christ is who we were intended to be as human beings as part of what's being restored there, right? So you've got a a restoration of, we see the perfect image of God in the face of Christ himself as he shines the glory of God, and we are being transformed into who we're really supposed to be as human beings as we are being transformed by the glory of Christ himself, all right? Uh, So what... How do I sum all this up? Because there are a lot of complicated ideas here. Well, it is that as we know Christ in the new covenant, Christ rips the, the veil away from our hearts. We have this face-to-face uh, relationship with God by the Spirit of God, and we are being transformed as we live in this new covenant relationship with the Trinity. And we're being transformed into the image of God, and and really the image that we were intended to be as human beings. We're really becoming who we were intended to be and created to be as we are being changed into uh, the character and the image of God. And so he goes on in the passage, and he says uh, in verse 5, "...for we are not preaching ourselves, 
but Christ Jesus as Lord in ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. Now, boy, grab hold of this because this is just a, uh, a beautiful statement that sums up a lot of what we've been saying about authentic ministry. The false teachers are preaching themselves. Their type of commendation, their type of boasting is all self-centered. And what Paul says here is, in the New Covenant, we are not preaching ourselves, we are preaching Christ Jesus as Lord. Our role, instead of one of glory, in one sense of, of you know, kind of cultural glory, is slavery. <laughs> we, are, we are Christ's slaves, we are serving Him in living out ministry to you. All right? So um, we are not preaching ourselves, but we are preaching Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. And then verse 6, because God, the one having said, light will shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts the light which is the personal comprehension of God's glory in the face of of Christ. Now, let me say a word about the background here, um, where he talks about this uh, idea of light shining out of darkness. This is an allusion, we think, to Genesis 1-3, in part, where it talks about God bringing light in the creation. The God who has shown the light out of darkness, he said, let there be light, and there was light. Uh, that's one aspect that's in the background here. The other thing that may be combining with that imagery from Genesis is Isaiah 9-1, or Isaiah 9-1, excuse me. And in that passage, it says, O oh, you people who walk in darkness, see a great light. O oh, you who live in the country and in the shadow of death, light will shine on you. That's Isaiah 9-1. In the context, Isaiah anticipates a future beyond the time of Israel's exile and is ripe with messianic passages. He uses um, Isaiah to rebuke spiritual blindness, by the way. Uh, Paul does in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 um, and 4 in places. And um, he's going to play off of these images of glory and darkness in a number of places. But he says that what has happened in the gospel is God who is the God of creation who has shown, uh, brought light into the world, the God of the messianic promises, who promises that the Messiah will shine light on God's people. He is the one who has shown in our hearts the light, which is the personal comprehension of God's glory in the face of Christ. And I'm rendering the, the Greek text there uh, as, as appositional is what it's called, but uh, it's the light, and that light, the nature of the light that God has brought is our ability to comprehend the identity of Christ and to see who he really is as he manifests the glory of God. All right, so let me just say a word here in thinking about this. Those of us who wish to proclaim the gospel authentically should remember that authentic ministry rests in the mercy of God. That's where he launches this whole passage. He says, because of the mercy of God in our lives, then we're going to persevere in this ministry to other people. So that's one thing. Second, authentic proclamation of the gospel needs to be practiced with integrity, obviously. That would be another application of this passage. And then third, we do well to remember that authentic proclamation of the gospel um, is going to be rejected by some because of their 
spiritual darkness and blindness. And then finally, we preach Christ as a manifestation of God's glory. Okay, um, so those are a few thoughts about the passage. Let me, I know that it's, again, a difficult passage. Let me see if you have questions that you want me to kind of um, unpack a little bit more in that passage, and I think it's time for us to take a break. I think we're having a proper break this time. Is that right? Okay. Dorothy. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Did you get... Okay, so the question is, could I comment on those uh, passages of Scripture where spiritual blindness is imposed on people? Specifically, you have the idea of the Jewish people. Um, as It's really a form of judgment. Yeah. So spiritual blindness is, um, you know, it's a complicated thing in biblical theology, and again, you know, we get back to some of these things of, well, is it that God is blinding people and they don't have ability to see, or is he responding to their blindness or whatever? And I, and I think the answer to that is yes. It's, it's cyclical in, in one sense. Um, there are times that the hardness of a person's heart, like you take, this is not the Jewish people, obviously, but Pharaoh, you know, in the Exodus passages, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But part of what's going on there is judgment against the nation of Israel. The plagues of Egypt are God clicking through a lot of the gods of Egypt and judging those different gods through all the different plagues that are taking place. And so God is bringing his glory by bringing radical judgment on a nation in order to bring deliverance to his people. You have times in the Old Testament where what happens is God is bringing the nation into judgment and that judgment is manifested by their blindness. So they are blind and being judged for their blindness spiritually, and their hearts are being hardened and their, their eyes are blind. So you take, for instance, Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, okay. And you, you have the follow-up on that beautiful manifestation of the glory of God in that throne room scene with God, then you turn, in, you turn to the passage of, so that, you know, I'm doing these things so that, seeing you will see and not perceive, hearing you will hear and not understand. Jesus picks up on that imagery with the sower, the parable of the sower, and he says, the reason why I speak in parables is so that, seeing they will not see and hearing they will not understand. The parables of Jesus become a form of judgment because at points, he's talking to people who are so undiscerning spiritually that they don't pick up on the basic truths that he's sharing in, in the parables. So I, I do believe that there are times that God sovereignly brings judgment against a people by, in some ways, allowing their blindness, if you want to say it that way, uh, hardening their hearts as a form of judgment, and, and how that works cyclically, is it because of the condition of their hearts is, you know, whatever. It's, again, that's a mystery of, what, of the workings of the human heart. A lot of times in biblical theology, it's a mystery. What's the chicken and what's the egg here, you know, and what's going on? Uh, but what we can take those passages as is to say they are rhetorically calling us to open our eyes, to hear that's why Jesus over and again says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What he's saying is, hey, listen, if you've got the ability, listen up spiritually. Tune in so that you kind of shake yourself and you rivet your attention. 
that kind of idea. Um, it, it is a mystery why some people, you know, respond to the gospel and some people don't. Our part is simply to be people who are proclaimers of the gospel. And it is exciting to see places like I've mentioned to you guys. My, uh, in Israel right now, there are about 150 Messianic congregations in Israel, Messianic Jewish congregations in Israel. They have a, they have a worship um, kind of uh, celebration every couple of years in which a couple of thousand Messianic Jews show up and share the worship songs that they've been writing over the previous two years, and then they produce that on CDs and send them out to all the Messianic congregations. God's doing amazing things in the world. Uh, but those Messianic Jews are, are, you know, really out there loving people and sharing the gospel, and God is opening eyes. But it is, but it is hard to understand why you do have, you know, the hardness of heart and the blindness at certain points. That's not a great answer, Dorothy, but do you, do you want me to follow up with anything else? Yeah, I, I think that whatever your theology in terms of, you know, Calvinism or many, anything like this, it is God's role in transforming the human heart. Only God can transform the human heart. It's just not, it's just not possible for us as human beings to, to initiate that. And, and, you know, there are different passages that we could talk about it is a mystery in how all that works, but, but I think that we, at the end of the day, can come and to say to God, praise you, O Lord, because I could not have found you. You had to find me. You had to come to find me in the gospel. And, that, and prayer is part of that, and, you know, in terms of praying for other people, we, that's, a, that's an important ministry that we pray that God would open the eyes of people. I mean, it's vital. So right here, and then we're going to take a break. Yes, you had a question. green light on there. Here you go. Let me just hand you this one. Um, would you say a, a valid implication of this passage would be, so um, the God of this world is blinded. People are in the dark. Um, and it takes that same power that God demonstrated at creation to say, let light shine into darkness. That same power is needed to, for God to open the eyes, so, you know, just as it is a miracle, supernatural, or miracle um, at creation, um, so that same power is demonstrated every time someone comes to faith yeah. in Christ. Yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. Okay, uh, let's take a break. I think this is a proper break for about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, something like that. So right now, I have 25 till, so you want to come back at five o'clock to uh, have a final time together. And we'll, we're going to have to look at an overview of this thing about the uh, pots, the cracked pots. Uh, so we're going to come back and talk about cracked pots in 4-7 uh, and following briefly before we wrap up the day, okay?